3: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week, we come to you from the East Hotel, right here at the Brickell City Center in Miami. Well-designed hotel in the middle of a lot of activity that never used to be right here, but boy, is it here now. My next guest has, in my book, an enviable job. I, I I am fascinated by what he does, and that's also because I'm fascinated with the process of aviation and especially how airports work. Most people don't understand it. Most people then are abused by it. And yet, his job is a big, it's a big deal job because he is basically the chief security officer at Miami International. He's the big cheese. He's Dr. No. He's Mark Hatfield. How are you, sir? I'm good, Peter. But before you were here, I mean, before you were at this job, you were also here doing the TSA stuff.
4: I I was. I got here in 2007, 10 years ago, as the federal security director for TSA and had a great seven-year run with the team, uh, TSA team here at MIA, and then went on to do the international uh, work for the agency in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean Spent my final compliance, year, compliance exactly yeah. for last point of departure airports. There are 115 or so airports that uh, planes take off either cargo or passenger. Next stop USA, and there are certain requirements that they needed to comply with and be inspected for. And that was one of the uh, that was the portfolio that I had after leaving MIA.
0: You know, here we are, 16 years and almost 16 years after 9/11, and I remember doing a piece probably almost once every two years when I was at NBC and then again at CBS of all the ridiculous stuff that was confiscated by the TSA that people actually thought they could bring on the plane. Right? I mean, I'm talking chainsaws, cans of gasoline, right? I mean, are you ever surprised anymore?
4: It's hard to be surprised, but I, I got to tell you, 15 years into it, I yeah. mean, TSA is about 15 years old, yeah. uh, we're as you mentioned, going on 16 years since 9-11. Uh, I remember doing my first press conference as the TSA communication manager up in New York in 2002, and we found out back then that this is a great news uh, shtick, is to put a big table out, put all of the ridiculous things that have been intercepted. That was in year one.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm, the new I'm security
4: regime—sabers and and you know, lawnmowers. I mean, Chinese throwing stars and um, all manner of bladed weapons and, of course, firearms, which to this day, in fact, I was just talking to uh, one of the information uh, officers at TSA to confirm uh, that last year was another uptick year, year after year, um, increase in firearms interceptions in 15 years after the uh, the whole change in, in the way we do security.
0: Well, you know, before 9-11, I did a story and it was the wildest thing
4: that the, uh, for whatever reason, it was the FAA at that point that was doing the,
0: the actual counting of. It at the, you know, doing the, the the census that they found at airports like LAX within 500 feet of a security checkpoint, trash cans loaded with guns. And of course, the guns had serial numbers. They traced them back. And the most amazing discovery, this is like the year 1999, 2000, who owned the guns? Women. They were given to them by their significant other or by their husband. They forgot they were in their purse. They had to catch their flight. They didn't want to miss the flight. They just threw it in the garbage, right? I mean, so it had a deterrent effect,
4: <laughs> Indeed, and and to this day, the number one answer, when the police show up, TSA screeners find a a weapon either on someone's person or in their carry-on bag, number one answer is I forgot. And when that happens,
0: what then happens?
4: It depends. In 50 states, there's 50 different potential outcomes, or perhaps even more, because here in Florida, if you have a concealed carry permit, uh, it's most likely that you'll get a promise to appear, basically a citation.
0: uh, Like a misdemeanor.
4: They'll keep the gun, and and you'll be allowed to continue on your flight. You may even make the flight that you were starting out on, but uh, if you don't... Don't have a permit, then you'll be arrested and taken uh, to jail for processing. Of course, in in places like New York, you're going straight to jail and may be there for days before uh, you get out. Wow, may, may be there for longer than that.
0: But you would think, in the year 2017, people would sort of get the message.
4: There's something that disconnects in people's thought process when they go to an airport. I, I'm convinced of it. And, uh, you know, you see it in just kind of the, the sort of frantic and frazzled way that a lot of travelers uh, go. I even find it myself. Sometimes you, if you, you, you have a mental checklist. I travel fairly frequently. My wife travels every week. Um, you know, we consider ourselves pretty accomplished. But uh, there, there are still times when one of us will forget one of those important steps and either ring the magnetometer or uh, have the uh, person behind the x-ray say, is this your bag? which of course you know those are the words you don't want to hear you get <laughs> down to the end of the line and off to the side and they start going through your, your carry-on luggage but it's uh, you know premeditation and we used to preach this when I was at T- TSA and I st- certainly echo it now being a security chief for a major airport people have got to be deliberate when they travel they've got to think about it not a lot there's not a long list of things to do to, to prepare but just be conscious of, of some basic facts you know metal makes the magnetometer go off it stands to reason anything in your pocket now that the imaging machines are de rigueur at at, uh, at most airports uh, you've got they're going to see step- everything they're going to see everything, you know, a wallet, a billfold, anything that it sees that uh, that has a mass, sees it has an mass. anomaly, that is going to slow you down. It's going to slow everybody behind you right. down. And so these, you know, these are off-repeated messages, but it, sometimes they just don't see, get traction.
0: I, to, I just want to change local laws to make it legal for everybody just to show up at the airport naked. Would that work for you? I mean, they would just the lines wouldn't be pretty, but they'd move pretty
4: fast. It's funny you should mention that because we actually, I was doing a count the other day. We had a gentleman take all of his clothes off uh, in one of the terminals, and it was the it was the fourth one in the last year. Oh,
0: He just did it on his
4: own? Just did it on his own. So I don't know if he was trying to preempt the the delay in screening (laughs) by getting more prepared, but... uh no, I, I think that I think. Well, there's what happened a way. Him,
0: what happened to him?
4: He was um, talked to by law enforcement and and removed to a downtown facility. Um, he <laughs> I love what you say, it,
0: <laughs> downtown facility. We're he had going some other downtown. Going
4: on, but yeah. uh, no, I think I think that there's a way to um, have people remain clothed and still get through security in a in an expeditious fashion. And you're working on that. We're <laughs> working on that. It's and it's a lot better today than it was you know three four five years ago. It just it, it just it takes a constant reinforcement of the of the preparation. Process. Process and of the rules, and the rules do change over time. Sure. So.
0: Well, there, I guess, other than the the really scary stuff like weapons, what's the craziest thing that you guys confiscated? I, I saw one that happened in Boston the other day. I don't know if you saw this—the 22-pound lobster.
4: Oh, I did see that. Did you yes, see that one? I did.
0: The the guy shows up in his carry-on bag with a live 22-pound lobster, not in a container, not in any water. It's just like nah, nah, nah. and and they confiscated it and yes. then they then they gave it back to him
4: well then that was, that you know was kind said, of okay
0: bad. let's wand the lobster no but i mean come on right
4: well it's funny you know animals um, tend to top the list and we had uh, a few years ago here a gentleman who was trying to illegally export uh, some uh, exotic reptiles and when the uh, AIT, the the body scanner, alarmed, and they brought him off to the side. They well, he was wearing them? He had them in nylon stockings um, down inside his pants. He had four rare tortoises and seven rare snakes. So
0: basically, you're opening the door for me to say, is that a I, tortoise in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? I had to say it. it. Okay, It always
4: goes there, yes. <laughs> and I just went there. I'm sorry.
0: And that he was arrested then.
4: Yeah, it's funny. Being in South Florida, we're so close to the Caribbean yeah. and to, to Latin America, the uh, amount of exotic birds and reptiles uh, you know, it tends to bring a lot of good stories, both coming in and going out.
0: And then when you say the rules change, there was a time, especially during the holiday season, that the definition of the word liquid got into, in, into play. Is a pecan pie allowed? Is an apple pie allowed? A peanut butter and jelly sandwich allowed? Where are we now with that?
4: Well, um, you know, the the famous line was Saturday Night Live is a turkey sandwich, a liquid. No, what if you put it in a blender? Um, And so we're still getting some (laughs) confusion over the liquids. But I think that for the most part, TSA has gotten pretty pretty consistent with the application of liquids gels aerosols uh it, it usually tends to be cosmetics um, beverages all of those things that are in in large over three and a half ounce containers or that don't fit in that one quart ziploc bag that's got to be surrendered before you get to the checkpoint but of course most of those consumables are available in the sterile area of, of good sized airports you know it's
0: interesting when people travel and and uh, what well, this makes common sense a lot of them are traveling with brand new items, right, or unopened items. Hmm. Uh, if you go down to Scottsboro, Alabama, a place called for unclaimed airline bags, all the stuff that's actually has been lost, they couldn't reunite it, and they sell it, 60% of the things they sell that came out of people's luggage still have price tags on them because they bought them to take on a trip, but they never found them again, right? What happens to all the, the, uh, the cosmetics that are still sealed, that have never been opened, still have the price tags on them that you have to confiscate? Where do they go?
4: So TSA does the, and, and they don't use the word confiscate. The, those are all surrendered items uh, because the passenger <laughs> technically has the option to either re- retreat and check it in a bag right. or to mail it to themselves or hand it off to a right. to a companion. Do you have
0: that program here? A lot of airports do where they have the pouches where you can mail something to yourself. We
4: don't. Um, yeah. that, I, I've seen that. That's come and gone at a number of airports. Yeah. I don't know how, how healthy that, that market um, is these days, but uh, that that never caught on here in Miami.
2: Right. We're not in Kansas anymore.
0: You know, there are a couple of things that people don't realize about Florida. One is that there are still cowboys here, but you have to go a little bit further north from here to find them. And then the other is the history of the railroad in Florida. Going back to Henry Flagler and, and, and building that train, uh, we recently did a piece on CBS News that I did. I actually rode the new Bright Line in one of its test runs going between, uh, you know, West Palm Beach and Orlando and, and and every point in between, including Miami, I believe, uh, Probably the newest train developed in America um, and built with private funding, which is unusual considering the sad state of our infrastructure with the rest of the train system. Uh, but if you want to learn about the trains like I wanted to learn about the Cowboys in Florida, then you go to my next guest who's the uh, who's on the board of the Gold Coast Railroad Museum. And his name is Jose Izquierdo. How are you, Jose?
5: How are you doing? Good, good morning.
0: Or good afternoon or good, or good afternoon. evening. Oh, good wake, wake up, Jose. What's the <laughs> yeah. matter <around> with you?
5: <laughs> Sorry about that. But... Uh,
0: most people don't realize that Florida was a major train destination.
5: Uh, yeah, uh, Henry, the reason Miami pretty much exists is because of Henry Flagler bringing his railroad down from West Palm Beach to Miami when Julia Tuttle asked him. Otherwise, uh, Miami might have still been a little teeny tiny town somewhere.
0: But your museum right now shows some of those trains. Exactly, quickly.
5: exactly. We have some pieces from the Florida East Coast. As a matter of fact, we have uh, two steam locomotives. They're not operational anymore, but uh, we do. We have uh, also a couple of uh, coaches that used to belong to FEC. We have some coaches, um, some, I'm sorry, some engines that you have dining from. cars? We have dining cars. All right, cars. now yes. we're there. Okay. We have, we have dining cars from but the I have Seaboard. Tell,
0: but I have to tell you, oh, see, I, I remember Seaboard, and I'll tell you how I remember Seaboard. When I was about eight years old, my mm-hmm. parents took me on a train trip from New York to Florida. I believe it was Hollywood. It went to Hollywood, I believe.
5: Yeah, yeah. That, right? they, had and, and those, stations, they had train
0: stations. They had train West Palm. Right? But Hollywood. here's the, the, the story that happened on this train. So we're, we're on the train, and at about 8 o'clock at night on the train, they make an announcement that at 11 o'clock the next morning, the train is going to be separated. Half the train's going to go to Sarasota, and the other train's going to stay on to Hollywood. We were going to Hollywood. But the observation car was the last car on the train, right?
5: Yes. It was okay. This. So
0: at 8 o'clock the next morning, we knew that wasn't going to happen until 11. My dad, my mom was sleeping. My dad said, come on, let's go back to the observation. So we go back right and we're back there and I had my little brownie camera That's how old this was, okay? And I'm looking through the the viewfinder on the Brownie camera and what do I see coming behind us? A locomotive. And he's pulling right up to us. I'm saying, dad, they said they were separating the trains at 11. It's only 8.30. Well, they decided they were going to separate the trains at 8.30. And the next thing you know, the trains got separated and my dad and I, and my dad wasn't really physical. We are like running through train cars. (laughs) We get to the last train. Of course, there's nothing there because it was just an empty space in the track and we see the other train start to move with with my mom in there sleeping. And the conductor, on that other car, standing there and saying, "Come on, you can do it." <laughs> We're running along the tracks. It was like a bad Gene Wilder movie. Oh my gosh! We made it, and we—I'll never forget this. We got back on the train, and my dad looked at me and says, "Never tell your mother." Right? And we never did. This didn't happen. This—I I can now say it on the air. Now she passed away in two thousand and three. I cannot say it, but I mean—but <laughs> there's so much great history here.
5: Yeah, we do. We have—we have, like I said, we have uh, from NASA. We have two engines from NASA that we have that they gave us. Uh, we have uh, NASA cars. We have uh, California Zephyr. Uh, observation cars, a beautiful Ooh. observation car. And mean, by the
0: way, they still still in the California Zephyr. Yeah, right.
5: We have yeah, we have one of the original California Zephyrs. We have sleeper cars. We have uh, we have, uh, we have a Jim Crow car. I mean, I mean, we have and uh, of course a Ferdinand Magellan. Okay,
0: that that was the presidential car. Yes,
5: tell that's me about a, that. Well, that's a one of a kind. I mean, even the Smithsonian doesn't have something like this. And it was uh, built in 1942 for President Roosevelt uh, when the Secret Service uh, was afraid that maybe he was going to get uh, assassinated or something. So uh, and he traveled on it. Yeah, and he tra- he. Was was the first uh, it was built specifically for him and uh, three presidents use it uh uh mr uh, president roosevelt president eisenhower and president truman
0: and let's not uh, forget that under the waldorf astoria hotel in new york was a secret train station only to be used by the president if he needed to get out of and the there's hotel a
5: car down there his, even now yes president Roosevelt's limo there's a car that carried his limo it's now trapped down there because they removed the tracks And so it's it down oh, it's my down God. there but the somewhere. limo's not in there uh, no, the car's no. not there, but I'm saying the train car is still there from the last that we heard because we wanted to get a hold of it. But there's no tracks to it right now. You They're can't get it tracks.
0: out. You cannot get it yeah. out if the chainsaw. Uh, yeah,
5: but the Magellan's a one of a kind. You know, we give tours in it. You know, and it's uh, it's a beautiful car, fully restored. Um, like I said, we have a uh, kids. Uh, we have a model uh, model train section that uh, the kids can come in there and that would see
0: be my section. All gauges. That in. would be my section. Yeah. Because I, I, I did not have a model train set when I was a kid, I, well, and I have regretted it ever since.
5: Yeah, I have, yeah. We have, have the big transformers have, with the red and the green and the. Yes, whole thing? we do. We have Lionel from, like I said, from G gauge down to Z gauge, which is every gauge and every gauge in between. I mean, we have a lot of things. We have uh, also we have uh, Thomas come out the first two weeks in March. We have a full size Thomas the Tank Engine visit us, and <laughs> and it pulls the train. And also, uh, we've been doing it for the last uh, three years, uh, the Polar Express. If I could fly.
6: The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back
2: quickly is $4.
0: My next guest doesn't have to go all around the world to have a great dining and eating experience because he's the food and dining editor of the Miami Herald and there's a new restaurant opening up here about every 13 seconds and he's got to cover it all. What a tough job he has. Carlos Frias, how are you?
1: It's good to be here, Peter. It's great.
0: I mean, I'm never disappointed. I'm never surprised. I am amazed though because, I mean, the turnover, the opening, it just doesn't stop. No, and and we're catching us in the time of the season where some of
1: those restaurants that were ambitious at the beginning of the year are now kind of tightening their belts and seeing if they can make it through to the beginning of the season, which is interesting to watch.
0: So basically, you're Mr. Opening Night. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's, it's you know, get there, find out about the restaurant early, see if it's uh, what's what it's all about, because uh, if it doesn't have something special, it may, it may not be there for long.
0: Well, you see the trends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's not just Cuban cuisine. It's not just, you know, or like in California, it's not just Mexican cuisine. It's everybody, right? So what are you seeing that's actually exploding here in Miami now?
1: You know, the thing that we're seeing the most is Peruvian. Peruvian in general, both upscale and downscale Peruvian. Okay, so my question was, how much ceviche can you eat? <laughs> well, it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of um, more of the Asian influences. So it's not just specifically Peruvian, but they're kind of reaching out to their um, kind of like their pan Asian being brought into it. So like their Chinese, Japanese roots in, in that, and the Peruvian, yeah, absolutely. Wow. So it's really and and so it's, it's not hot just, and
0: sour guinea pig.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think there may be one spot uh, that that actually does guinea pig because really when I was in Peru it.
0: I couldn't show up anywhere without somebody offering me and you couldn't say no because it would be impolite they were giving you the guinea pig exactly and, and who's going to make better guinea pig than these folks right if exactly. you're going to eat it right so what's the thing that's surprising you the most about what's going on in the restaurant scene here
1: The the most interesting thing An interesting thing going on right now is that it's not out-of-town chefs opening their third, fourth restaurant on Miami Beach. It's locally grown folks who are uh, artisans and and, uh, kind of exploring their craft here, whether that's... Artisanal breads. Um, you know a, a guy that we know by the name of Zach the Baker, who uh, went to kind of scout, went scouting through. Uh, sounds, through like the a mass,
0: East. sounds like a mass murderer.
1: Well, Zach he's, the Baker. Well, but he looks he looks like a saint. You look at him; he looks okay. like a saint. Which and, he, and you, he does good bread. Oh my God, he does incredible bread. Zach the Baker in Winwood, which is one of those exploding areas. All right.
0: Well, when we talk about bakery, I mean I've got friends, of mine, including our engineer today, Jorge uh, Jorge Cajon, who who will tell you that nobody knows more about Cuban bread than this guy, meaning him. Jorge, right? And he will... Make a a point of stopping everywhere he can to get that bread. You too.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, for me, there's nothing like a like just a café con leche and a nice toasty Cuban bread. I mean, that's like. But what makes Cuban bread so special? I think it's you know, a lot of folks try to approximate it with uh, with like French bread, but really it's the lard, right? That's really just what makes it special. Now there's a name for a good
0: Cuban bakery. It's the lard.
1: (laughs) That's what it is. I
0: mean, look, you go to Montreal; they have the best bagels in the world. But their answer is it's because it's the water. Here it's the lard
1: here it's the lard man i mean if you you can't make a good cuban bread without adding plenty and enough of lard
0: praise the lord okay (laughs) but what i mean what is it what makes it taste differently then
1: i I think that i I really is is about um these kind of long-held process of how they raise the dough and how they bake it and like i said it's it's using um it's just using good good old-fashioned pig fat it's not a complicated bread it's just you got to have those proportions right. I want to see that little marketing branding slogan, good old-fashioned pig fat. I know. I mean, is there is there anything that pig fat doesn't make better? I contend no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and since this is radio, I should tell you that Carlos weighs 725 pounds. <laughs> no, I'm lying. I'm totally lying.
1: Uh, I have been told that that I would be I would come off as a, as a more uh, believable uh, food critic and, and dining editor if I put
0: on an extra 150 pounds. So I'm working on that. See, I, I look at it the other way. You ever go to a Dunkin' Donuts store? I mean, the guys there weigh two pounds because they don't eat it. Right. That's a good point. Right. That's a good point. But you have to eat it. sample. You sample. You sample. Yeah. It's it's sort of like wine tasting. You just spit it out. No,
1: I just I, I order a lot and I try lots of things and I take a lot I take a lot home. <laughs>
0: You scammer. Ah, it's a little bit of a scammer. Yeah, you scammer. But it's not just the Cuban bread. It's the Cuban hamburger.
1: Yes. See... Now that's I'm, a secret. That is the secret. You know, if you come to Miami and you want something really distinctive, and it's so low-end and so accessible, it's called the frita. And it's just a Cuban hamburger. They're kind of developed in Havana. And you can find a half a dozen shops, you know, within a half-mile range where you can get a good one.
0: Now, speaking of Cuban... I go back probably 20 years ago. I would take my friends. You're going to laugh at me, but I would take my friends who had no experience at all with Cuban food, and figure I, I got to immerse them a little bit slowly. So I take them to the airport to La Carreta, yeah, because that was a that was a good introduction for them, sure, right? And then La Carreta got big and they got famous and they got the branches all over the airport now. So yeah, yeah, La Carreta. But you know how I discovered La Carreta? Because I did a book years ago called Flight Crew Confidential where I interviewed about 400 different flight attendants and uh, flight crew members, pilots as well, to tell me where they went on their layovers. right? Whether Because mm. they, they only had 24 hours. They were on a budget. they had Everything had to have a cost-effectiveness to it because they weren't making a lot of money. They always wanted to eat well. They were Bourdain before Bourdain. They were. Yeah. And every one of them who was going through Miami was saying, that's where I go. That's how I found out about
1: it. Oh, that's yeah. a smart. Talk to a yeah. local, for sure.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So now where do you
1: go? Uh, well, for Cuban food, there's this great place where you got to go west. It's called La Fragua, and it's from the folks who uh, originally worked with the Estefans to open, um, to open the Larios on the beach. Like the same cook, and it's an 86-year-old man, his 80-year-old wife, and he's still the cook in the back, and she's still out front, and it's a great
0: partnership. And the food is, as you would expect. Okay, so that's where you go for Cuban food. Yeah. Yep. Where do you go? You mentioned it before, so I'll bring it up again. Where do you go for Peruvian? You know, right around my house, there are
1: two—not one, but two—aromas uh, de Perú, uh, aromas of Peru, uh, and it's just—it's almost like a—it's like a, a family-oriented small chain, and uh, and it's really just just great Peruvian food. And there's a place that all Peruvians love. That again, you got to go west. Uh, it's called Doctor Limón. Uh, because he used to make these cocktails that were like uh, hangover cures and they, you know, they were ceviche based. So people still, so Peruvians who live in Miami that just love Peruving go to that place way out in Kendall. And they take a designated driver. Uh, it's, I, you know, I don't speak for other folks, but they should. They should definitely <laughs> take an Uber.
0: We're talking to Carlos Frias, the food and dining editor at the Miami Herald. All right, so we've dealt with Cuban, we've dealt with Peruvian. Is there such a thing as great French food in Miami?
1: Great French. Well, there is a uh, there is a, a really well reviewed restaurant. We just reviewed a, a restaurant called Le Petit Maison, uh, which is uh, here in I want to say in Miami Beach, uh, and it got uh, our reviewer uh, Victoria Pesche, um, Pesche Elliott um, gave it three and a half out of four stars. She really loved it, and she is a real connoisseur of French cuisine, and she loved it. So the answer
0: to the question is yes, you can find it. Yes, you can find it. Okay. Absolutely, barbecue. Barbecue barbecue That's in tough. South Florida it's is tough. tough,
1: but I will tell you there's a there's a spot called um and it's you have to drive a little north, it's in Broward. Uh it's called uh, Blue Willie's. And it's it used to be just kind of in this little hole in the wall, and it just moved to a slightly bigger space. But if you're gonna it's it's probably where you can get the best down home barbecue. Uh and there's another place called Smoke, uh, which you can find Appropriately in, titled. Yeah, which again, solid barbecue.
0: The restaurants that you miss the most, the ones that didn't make it. Oh
1: um, God! There's a, I, I hate to say it, but there's a there's a list. that just they, every summer you have half a dozen restaurants that you thought, you know, I thought that one was really going to make it. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I can't think of any right off the top of my. head. All right, head then
0: anyway. I'll switch gears because the one thing we haven't talked about is the best breakfast dive in Miami. Oh well, you know we have waffle houses, but no, you I'm can't gonna, gonna go there. No, I'm
1: going to say Morgan's. Morgan's is a spot. See, I miss Wolfies. I miss Wolfies. Oh and, yeah, was, yeah, but they're gone. Yeah. But there's Morgan's? a place called Morgan's. It's been there for a long time. It's in Wynwood. It's right next to a place called Enriqueta's, which is a old like s- s- uh, Cuban food place. And right next to it, they do great kind of brunch food. Breakfast and brunch food, that's their sweet spot. My, my baby beside me
6: at the wheel. Cruising and playing the
2: radio. With no particular place to go.
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at wwwaudiblepodcastcom travel today to get a free audiobook and 30 day trial. There are so many things, and I, I've been talking about this throughout the show, but there are so many things in Miami. And within a 40-mile radius of where we are, that most visitors never see because they come down to they come down for the beach, the club scene, the nightlife. But then there's something else. And, and it's right here in Dade County. It's the Adrian Arst Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, quite an institution. And joining us now, the president and CEO, John Richard. How are you, sir?
7: Thanks for inviting me, Peter. Great. Terrific. So
0: when we talk about what you guys do there, um, I mean, I, I venture to guess, and I don't think I'm wrong, that if you go to any hotel in Miami, uh, the guests there, if they're not there for a convention or a meeting or they're there for a vacation, very few of them wake up in the morning saying, hey, let's go to the Adrian Arts Center because they don't know it. Right. You know it. The locals know it. What makes it so special?
7: I think it has fit right into the Miami Grand Plan
0: of. And it's not that old. It was only open what eleven years ago. It's we're in our, finishing our eleventh season. Yeah. We
7: celebrated, vibrant at tenth the past season, and over four million people uh, have attended performances now over the first eleven years,
0: including ballet, including opera.
7: Yeah, uh, we have two fantastic companies locally: the Florida Grand Opera, which has been really in South Florida for over seventy-five years, and. Uh, the great Miami City Ballet, uh, under the leadership of Lourdes Lopez. Um, One of the great, great companies that uh, I believe is an ambassador to the world for the city of Miami, the Miami City Ballet.
0: And you've got a great diversity of performers performers because you have everybody from the Florida Grand Opera to Louis C.K. Come on.
7: Yeah, we sold Louis C.K. out four times this year.
0: Louis C.K. to this day has the best routine about flying on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> you know the routine you tell it i can't tell it exactly the way that he tells it but he gets on a plane and the guy sitting next to him is angry because the wi-fi isn't working and he goes are you kidding me you're sitting in a chair traveling 600 miles an hour and you worry about that this is this this is the magical machine you know
7: yeah he's 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 really special yeah uh and uh one of the great uh, accomplishments of his four nights here is uh, his pricing of tickets. He makes it very affordable for his fans, and uh, it's a young audience. It skews younger. Uh, the millennials were out in force, and one of the things I learned that I didn't uh, doesn't happen too often is a, a lot of uh, singles came without a partner. It was it's a type of comedy show where if you like him, you love him. You're going to go see him.
0: Well, if you're going to see Louis C.K. and you're single without a partner, you may find a partner because you already share something in common. You all like Louis C.K. <laughs> I mean, you can, lo- you can all laugh at the same joke. There you go. But you also, what's, what's, what's with Courtney Love? Well. Explain that to me.
7: It, it was a great fit. Uh, Kansas City Choir Boy, we landed in the, uh, the very, very popular week of the world coming to Miami for Art Basel in the first week of By the of way, December. name
0: one, there are two weeks you won't find me in Miami. That's one. <laughs> and the other is the South Beach Food Festival. You know, because it's just too crazy.
7: It, it, it's a festival, that's for sure. But we're, we're really accustomed to uh, invasions of big events from Super Bowls to Major League Baseball All-Star Games uh, to great concerts and outdoor concerts. Um, that's a centerpiece of what we're about now in Miami, that culture is really important. And uh, people are coming here as a result of that experience. It's, it is about the beach. It is about the sun. And sometimes it's not. And we're really fitting into that, uh, that sweet spot We're a great city emerging and blooming, like where we're located right here today, in which I live a few blocks away. This is a place, this is a city in which culture is becoming the centerpiece of the Miami experience for those of us who live here, who have come from someplace else, like most of
0: us. But 20 years ago... 20, maybe, maybe not.
7: 30 years ago, the idea of the Adrian R. Center was just a seed. And it took 20 years to birth it. The gestation period was nearly 20 years. But now, in just sh- a short 10 years, the the location of these beautiful buildings designed by Caesar Pelli, a 2,400-seat Ziff Ballet Opera House, the last great concert hall designed and built in the United States by Pelli across the street with 2,000 seats. We have a wide range. So it's
0: not a huge place, but it's intimate and... And and you can still pack it in.
7: Yeah. And many things happening at once. And and, and in a way, the, the type of programming we do in Miami is like managing a flight tower because so many different events are landing at the same time that are very different from each other. And we have to find the public and the community to attend based on their
0: interests. So basically what you're trying to tell me, at least in the world of arts and performance, you're an air traffic controller.
7: We, we do practice the ability of landing people into their seats safely.
0: Well, that, not everybody can say that. But you also have an educational program for kids.
7: Yes. And uh, there's really an exciting program we're launching in, at the end of September that relates very significantly to
0: Miami, the international city. And, a, and, but the reason why I'm asking that question is because I think there are so many hotels in so many cities that don't take advantage of that for their own guests. Meaning, if I'm staying at this hotel and I've got kids, wouldn't it be great for you guys to, to make something available for them during a short period of time that they can also come in and, and participate there?
7: Yes, of course. And we're doing that um, often on weekends there is a a significant programming outside and inside that's Free Family Festival kind of related. Uh, People in town for a short period of time should be paying attention to our website because not everything is happening inside at the Arts Center. It's also happening outside. And the, the idea that people... Uh, come to Miami, stay in Miami, return to Miami. The Art Center is becoming more and more ingrained in their thinking about the cultural scene of Miami. That combined with the rest of the neighborhood now in bloom, with the Perez Art Museum and the Frost Science Center, all within walking distance of each other, we have imagined and now created a cultural district in the downtown. And look where we are right now, the Brickle City Center where was that 20 years ago it didn't exist i came here eight years ago and i can tell you it didn't exist
2: if you are continuing on to another southwest destination please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information if you are continuing on with another airline we really don't care I am a-
0: you know, I'm a big fan of doing stuff with the locals. I'm a big fan of of hidden gems, things that are not in the guidebooks, not in the brochures that you really just didn't know about, but anybody can do. It's all about accessibility. And my next two guests know a lot about that. One of whom I've known for too many years, <laughs> dating back to our days at NBC, and she's still on NBC. She's one of the stars of, uh, of WTVJ right here in Miami. And her partner are both co-authors of a book called Hundred Things to Do in Miami Before You Die. Uh Knowing Miami as much as I do, or I should say as little as I do, I, would, I might have even called the book A Hundred Things to Do in Miami Before Everybody Else Gets Up.
3: <laughs>
0: That's <is> so true. <laughs> or even realizes they're awake.
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: Marucci Mendez, Roxanne Vargas. Nice to see you, especially Roxanne, yeah. after all these years. And Marucci, so in doing this book, there are the iconic things in Miami that people come to expect. You know, and you can go get you know, go get Cuban food at La Carreta, do all that kind of stuff. But what's what was the surprises to you? Because you guys are local to begin with. So, what are the surprises to you that you discovered when you were doing this book?
2: I thought I knew Miami, <laughs> but I really didn't, and uh, I really enjoyed this. I uh, I uh, went on all the uh, cruises, uh, and by the way, so, so you're basically
0: telling me to research this book. You just did a lot yes. of cruises. Uh, yes. <laughs> what a tough job that <laughs> must have
2: been. Yes, I had to because that was a. Uh, the best way to do it, read a lot. And um, I did one thing that was on my wish list and hadn't been brave enough to do it. I finally, after being in Miami for over 52 years, I finally went to the Everglades and I took the, um, the airboat ride and saw the alligators. And I see
0: that you still have your arms and legs with you. And so. I have
2: them, yeah. <laughs> I, but uh, I was brave enough because uh, I had Now the next company. time you go back,
0: do what I did, do the what? nighttime tour. Oh, I'm not brave you have for to that. be brave! No, know. you do the nighttime tour. It's amazing because you have these little <laughs> spotlights, and all of a sudden you see these little yeah, two eyes. Lights. Oh, yeah, you think they're yeah. lights. You think they're lights. Yeah, the little
2: red ones. Yeah. No, yeah. well, uh, I might. Uh, let's see. Let's know. see. We do it. You uh, might. In you, the you're going to have to go with
3: the granddaughters. I think. I'll yes. stay home with the kids. I'll stick yeah. to the to the sunlight. I, I
2: took my granddaughters <laughs> with me, and they, uh, they, were, they braved me up.
0: They
3: did.
2: They did.
0: Okay, but that's something that anybody can do. That's just one of the things on your bucket yes. list. But in, in, the, in the research of the book, Roxanne, what did you discover that you're sharing with me that you didn't even know you could do?
3: You know, what's, what's really cool is that not only did Marucci and I do the research by doing everything ourselves, we also turned to the community, you know, we, thanks to the, the socials. <laughs> I call yeah. it the socials. You know, we really, you know, asked for the voice of, of the people. And like Sweat Records, for example, um, here in Miami, I mean, repeat after me. Vinyl records, vinyl records, cassette tapes, turntables, guys, they exist. I
0: still have an eight track.
3: I do too. And it works, (laughs) baby. But that's
2: so cool. And now the turntables are coming back. The turntables are are coming back. I mean,
3: I think that's so cool. The fact that there's a place here in South Florida where you could actually go and, and, you know, if you can envision this with me, you know, kind of walk with your fingers to the different discs and find modern music and find older music. And Peter, I'll tell you, Marucci and I were talking about this. You know, we wrote this book, and and here in Miami, I'm saying Miami specifically. Things open and close; they come and go all the time. There's, there's. Are you trying to
0: say it's transient?
3: It's maybe depends on who you ask, but you know, I, he, there's this place in Hialeah. For anybody that's listening and doesn't know about Hialeah, you know, you think about the Cuban exile community landing here in South Florida. You automatically think about Little Havana. Hialeah is also an area with a large population of Cuban of the Cuban exile community, Cuban Americans. There is an authentic French restaurant in Hialeah. A wife and a husband. The husband is from the south of France. They met in California, came to Hialeah, opened up a restaurant called La Fresa Francesa, which translates to uh, the French strawberry, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And it's um. I mean, you don't you don't see that Peter in the travel books. You don't see that. You only know that if you're a local or you know a local or you just.
0: Happen to be watching
3: a story, you know, on the news, and
0: although there are places that you have to go to that you would normally not know about, to just to get the Cuban bread. Yes, just the bread. You don't, you could like just get the bread in a cafecito and go, and you're good. <laughs> I mean,
3: that's that's
0: that's it's all See, about. I the Cuban judge bread. the world. I, I judge the world by three things. You're gonna laugh. Bakeries, mm-hmm. right? Rice pudding. <laughs> sorry. No, don't be sorry. No, bakeries, rice pudding, and. In a way, um, uh, if they don't have the rice pudding, then I go for chocolate mousse. Ooh. But but and but it's got it can't be the chocolate mousse that's served in little five you know little five little. inch diameter uh, you know champagne cup with a little spoon. It's got to be serious high test yeah. chocolate mousse. Yeah. So you definitely have the bread going here, <laughs> right? It's, it's, and and you have the bread going here because can you go to the bakeries at 11 o'clock at night? Yeah, you can. That's oh, the yeah. deal. Yeah, see? you
2: can. <laughs> it, it's funny that, that you should mention the sweets because Roxanne and I discussed there's so many awesome um, cake makers here in Miami yeah. that we have a category we have indulge your sweet tooth. We even have, we, we even cover that. We mm-hmm. did the bakeries and the, the big cake makers.
0: So, Maricci, what you're telling me is you, you hung out on cruise ships and you ate a lot.
2: Well, oh, yes. Well, uh, we stuffed ourselves. We really did. <laughs> it's uh, tough. It was so much fun. It's not my genre. It's okay.
0: So, in doing this, because you have a hundred things in there, what was the biggest surprise? The one that you said we had no
2: clue. I, I'll tell you what I enjoyed a lot, and I discovered, um, rediscovered, is uh, Miami River. Uh, Miami River is now full of restaurants, and it's a real nice area. And uh, that's one of the that's one of the things I discovered. Um, I re- rediscovered again all the festivals. We have the orchid festivals, the mango festivals, the many things that uh, our own Fairchild Gardens and Deering Estates have to offer. A lot of beautiful stuff to do. And and um, if
0: you've got kids like you do, Roxanne. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's
3: that's that's the beauty of of Miami, Peter. You have the stuff that you could do with the kids, and then you could. You know get a babysitter and go out and party like jennifer lopez if you want to do that here in miami and you could totally do that um you could see miami from the cruise ships like maruchi said you know from the airboat rides i was surprised to learn that you could hang glide over over Biscayne Bay, I know that you can get a seaplane. But the you're talking you about paragliding. No, hang, I mean it says it here, hang here. You can hang glide. Out. Yeah, hang glide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hang it's gliding. here. Let me find the page Okay, for so you. somebody is
0: a death wish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well,
3: it's it's kind of. But hey, if you, I mean, you could also skydive. Yeah. Which is something that they do down in the uh, in the Homestead area.
2: I'll and before, I'll do the Segway. You go up. Uh, I stay. with yeah. I You're about, not going anywhere. No, I'm no. not going up. You're still recovering what's from looking good, at an no, what's good about the balance in the book is the the generations two different generations. I was able to cover it as a grandmother, and she is a very young mother and um, young professional. All our activities and all of our venues say if they're family-friendly, family-oriented, adults only, so... It's got a little bit of everything. It's it's very complete. It's very complete.
3: And here's and I, I will add something else. You know, talking about things that you discover. Um, there's a there's a chef here who has become well known over the years. His name is Chef Adrian Calvo. Her restaurant is. Um, she'll tell you herself. It's in the middle of nowhere. She started uh, doing dark dining reservations, where you know once a year, twice a year, she will have two nights invite only at reservation I should say only and lights are turned off you put a blindfold on people are on dates they're on girls nights teachers getting together friends getting together and you're literally being taken through a six course meal in the dark and the second guys that you learn to let go of your table manners and realize that it's okay to not use a fork and a knife and just pick up with your hand and kind of let all your other senses take over that is very cool and that was very unique and I, I know that that's something that's done on the west coast it's kind of something dark that was popular. Yeah. yeah, dark dining. But Chef Adrian Calvo was the first one to bring it here. Yeah, but on the West Coast, um, that's
0: drug-induced. That's okay. <laughs>
3: right. Different they story They're not
0: aware of the fact that they're actually exactly. doing it. You know?
3: Yeah. <laughs> there you
0: go. But when you did that, right, did you have any idea of what you were eating? I didn't. Like they, they don't. It. They
3: don't tell you. Yeah, they, at the end they let you figure it out. Chef will let you figure it out, and then towards the end she'll come out after the, after you've enjoyed. So the that course. was some of the best
0: head cheese you've ever eaten. Oh or... man, it was good <laughs> stuff. It was good stuff. And
3: the, the, one of the desserts that she served up was pudding. I tried serving it. I tried like feeding my husband with the pudding. I was like, this is not going well.
2: <laughs> but, but wait, but, it was
3: so cool. But know what it was? I didn't. No. Eventually, you know, you kind of try to guess. But What then, happens
0: if you have a food allergy?
3: No, you do let them know. You do advise. My husband doesn't eat anything from the sea, so they, uh, uh, you know, did. Change the menu up just a little bit for him. He doesn't eat
0: chocolate either.
3: How I'm with a man who doesn't eat any seafood or chocolate, I you must know, love him to the end of time. when I do?
0: No, 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 no. You're actually quite selfish. It means more for you.
3: There you go. I was like, hey, just give him something different. I'll take his, please. All
0: right. So that's dining in the dark. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, look, in Miami, it sort of reminds me of, of, of Madrid. What you wear, to, uh, you know, what you wear to dinner at night, you wear to work the next morning. Absolutely. Right.
3: Unless you're on TV, like me.
6: All around the world. <laughs> If there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant (laughs) $75.63.
0: Joining me now, the uh, the chef right here of, uh, at, at, east, at, the, at the Quinto La Huela. Did I get it right? Quinto La Huela. Quinto La huella. Quinto la huella. <laughs> Everybody calls him uh, Chef Nano, but it's Nano Crespo from Argentina. Absolutely. Right? Uh, but you've been at So House, all that stuff. But how much of the Argentinian menu do you incorporate? Because I have to tell you something. I'm a pescatarian. So I show up in Argentina. I'm a dead man because it's all meat. What's more meat. And what would you like to have with your meat? Would you like a side of meat with your meat? Am I right?
6: No, no, no. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, the thing about Argentina, it's like we have such a wide and long coastline. You know, we have lots of seafood, but no one seems to be interested in it.
0: Except um, this one guy like me. But exactly. exactly.
6: But, uh, you know, Quinto La Huesa and La Huesa being from Uruguay, uh, we do emphasize a lot in seafood. So in Quinto La Huesa, we do, uh, we do, we do a lot of seafood, a lot of fish.
0: All right, so being that this is a new hotel, I have to ask my favorite question to ask a chef. When you were designing the menu, what's the one thing you put on the menu that said, boy, everybody's going to love this, and it tanked? And then what's the one thing you said, well, we'll put it on the menu, but who's going to want this, and everybody wants it?
6: Local fish. Local fish on the grill.
0: That everybody wants. Oh, yeah. And what's the one thing they don't want?
6: The one thing they don't want is probably pork. I don't know why, but I love pork, but it's just like no one seems... Every time we put it on the menu or as a special, no one seems to kind of like it. So
0: it's not a regular item on the menu? No. No. So I'm not going to be ordering pork there? No.
6: I mean, I wish you would (laughs) because I want everyone to, but it just doesn't go.
0: All right. So let's go back to local fish because the key thing here in in Miami is you can source everything. Exactly. Right? So what's that local fish that is your numero uno?
6: The snapper. The red snapper? Yeah. Red American snapper, lane snapper. I mean, that's what people Line want. caught. Yeah, yeah,
0: And how do you prepare it?
6: Uh, straight on the grill. A little bit of butter, salt, pepper. That's it.
0: All right, so now I have to ask you the other question that every celebrity chef gets asked. Not, but they get it asked by me. <laughs> and that is... Why is it that in the world of one-upsmanship, every chef tries to just garnish everything with so much stuff on it that it ruins the dish?
6: No, we don't. We don't. You
0: know you know what I'm saying. It's yeah, sort of like- yeah,
6: absolutely. Um, we, I mean, we, in fact, we are so bare, our, our, our uh, plates are so simple that it's kind of stupid in a way. Like, what you see is what you get. A fish fillet, a little bit of sauce, a lemon wedge. That's it.
0: That's it. So at the end of the day, you're keeping it simple.
6: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what we do. We uh, source local ingredients, good ingredients, and and that's it. That's really it. That's what we put on the plate. So
0: do people get surprised by the fact that it's just simply grilled? Yeah. <laughs>
6: Most of the time they do. I'm I like, mean, I was at a what? dinner. Yeah. I have to order a side. I have to order, uh, you know, there's no garnish. Like, no, that's it. That's what you get.
0: I was at a dinner just last night and they said, well, we have swordfish. I said, great. Um, how do you, how is it prepared? They went through a list of 75 different things and said, how about this? Olive oil, grill it, we're done. And they went, that's it? I said, yeah, it was delicious.
6: That's, that's what it is. That's what we do. <laughs> and
0: other than the snapper, what would be your signature dish?
6: Well, the snapper, I mean, I don't like, I don't like that, that I, in fact, I don't like that question. I don't like the signature dish question because, as a chef, what we do is, what I do is, um, you know, I focus in a lot of different things, and I don't like to pinpoint something out of uh, one menu that has forty-five items. And it's like, what's your signature? No, there's no signature. What we do is what we do. Like the whole thing, it's 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 way broader than that, you know. Um, Popular, yeah, I can say the swordfish, the snapper, uh, the milanese, a feel the steaks, the ravioli, that's what I can say. So
0: basically a tribute to your homeland, you threw a couple of steaks in there, didn't you? Exactly. Okay, good. (laughs) Chef (laughs) Nano, the chef of Quinto La Juela, thank you so much.
3: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the
6: world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
5: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail.